Hi, this is Tim and Dole. Welcome to Midwest Hunting and Outdoors by Two Dumbasses. A podcast about the outdoors, hunting, and being a steward of the land. Welcome to Midwest Hunting and Outdoors by Two Dumbasses. We've got a special guest here that we're excited to introduce here in a minute. But before we do that, Tim, let's talk about you know how people can uh, see our podcast. You bet. So during one of our last episodes, we talked about uh, we had some difficulties with YouTube, and uh, we've got those since rectified. So we're now on YouTube. We've got uh, we're starting to see an increase in our uh, subscribers. We also are on Twitter. And uh, Instagram, we're trying to figure that out, uh, trying to figure out how that fits in our niche, because really that's just for you posting off your phone and uh, people use it on their phone. And again, trying to figure out how that fits in for what we're trying to offer and deliver. And then lastly, our Facebook page really coming along. So those are the the ways people can reach us. And also we have an email out there that if people want to contact us that way. But we really look at our uh, at the comments on our videos and podcasts. Uh, that you can get to us and then getting back to the audio versions of the podcast we are we are out there we're on seven different platforms today soon to be on stitcher uh, overcast we're on spotify um, we're on itunes so reach out to wherever you get your uh, podcast and you can you can catch us there and we really appreciate your support subscribing i think just go to google and uh, type in midwest uh, hunting and outdoors yep and uh, you'll you'll find something that's right something on us one other thing is, is we also, uh, we've been getting some uh, t-shirts, some hats we're getting set up so that uh, people have been asking how they could support us. We're not looking to make a ton of money, just maybe kind of help us defer some of our costs. So um, we have some new shirt and got the buy two dumb asses, our logo on the back. And uh, you can get those off of eBay. And we have that uh, link on our the back of this episode. And we'll also have the link also um, on our Facebook page. So really appreciate that. And uh, this, this shirt here actually is Jeremy's. Because we are starting to give all our guests a shirt to uh, for, for helping us out and joining our efforts. So thanks so much, Jeremy. Yeah, thank you very much. Hey, you're welcome. Cool. So before we get to uh, Jeremy, he, even though he's got his free shirt already, so hang in there. That There's no such thing as a free shirt, right. just like a free lunch, Jeremy. Uh, before we get to that, we always start off our episodes with, you know, what, what have you been up to this week? So Tim, you want to talk uh, about what you've been up to? Yeah, so we've been talking a lot about uh, putting up cameras and, and stuff, about putting in that, that kind of lull before you really start to put in your last set of food plots, etc. So I ended up putting up uh, quite a few cameras. Also, we had a good dear friend of ours come down to uh, visit us three years ago, no, four years ago. We put in a, a pollinator, um, pollinator program in the CRP, and uh, it was CP42, and it's been about... Like I said, four years and it takes about three years before those flowers and those forbs start to really pop up. And this uh, dear friend of ours asked us, like, well, how many of those flowers have really, of the species that you planted have come up? And I said, well, I don't know. That's a good question. And uh, she goes, well, I'm going to come over there and we're going to go out and do an identification because she's a, a master gardener. So I said, all right. So I ended up digging back into my email records and, and finding out what did I plant and uh, then I went and created these spec sheets for each of those items. So, hey, what's the, I made pictures and then the descriptions. And then for me also, hey, management wise, how do you manage it? Is, it? is it good for fire burning, not good for fire burning, stuff like that. So I thought that'd be good for me since I was already at it. And uh, so we had 21 species that we planted. And of that 21, we found 20. Yeah, so I was pretty excited, and it was a lot more fun than than I thought it would be. So uh, we're going to continue to build out those spec sheets, but build those spec sheets out for the farm. We know what we got, and both good and bad, right? So we got thistle, and I now know what that uh, uh, water hemp. Or we're going to talk about water hemp here in a little bit. Yeah, it's not your friend. Yeah, for sure. So for sure. that's what I did. Awesome. Well, I know people are uh, tired of hearing my stories about uh, mowing, et cetera, so I'll leave that out. But um, a discovery I had on my bean field 
is uh, Roundup, 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 and uh, still not killing these weeds. So I literally picked a weed, uh, took it into the ag service uh, in the local area here, and found out that I'm battling uh, water hemp. I walked in with the weed, and they said, I said, I need two things. What is this weed, and then how do I kill it? And they said, it's water hemp. Like everybody in stereo, it's water hemp, and you can't kill it. Not with Roundup. So, uh, but after some conversations, uh, I talked to, uh, talked to some folks there and uh, we ended up with um, a cocktail of uh, Roundup, some crop oil and blazer is the uh, prescription for it. And I sprayed that two weeks and I would, uh, I'm sitting here with a bigger smile on my face and a happier man because my bean field's pretty, uh, pretty good shape. I think I need to go back and probably hit it one more time. Uh, but there's nothing higher than the beans now from a weed standpoint. And, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm super happy about that small victory I had. Now, you've had, you've had a couple issues with some invasive species. I mean, so you had water hemp. I didn't even know what the heck water hemp was. And now uh, you also had is it something garlic. I forget what well, it was. Well, well, we'll talk about that, but wild garlic. <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, wild garlic. I, I think uh, everybody that's land in the state of Iowa probably has the wild garlic problem. But, uh, <laughs> yes, um, which, you know, leads me to our introduction here of our guest, uh, Jeremy. I'll let you introduce yourself, and, and your official title is District Forester for the state of Iowa? Right. Uh, my name is Jeremy Cochran, and I'm the District Forester for the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. And my forestry office is in Sheraton at the Stevens State Forest Headquarters. And I provide technical assistance, forestry advice to private landowners in South Central Iowa. And it includes Marion, Mahaska counties, Lucas and Monroe counties, and Wayne and Appleton counties. So if folks are in those counties, you're the you're the contact for them um, for any questions from a forestry standpoint. Yep, that's right. So, uh, you know, 85% of Iowa's forest land is owned by private landowners. And uh, that's what we do is we want to encourage people to, to long-term manage their forests to help meet their goals and for healthy forests across Iowa. So, Jeremy, if they're not in one of those counties, how do they go about finding some of those people that yeah. might manage those other counties in the state. Yeah, so the best way to get a hold of the district foresters is actually on the Iowa Department of Natural Resources website. So if you go to iowadnr.gov and click on the conservation tab, and that'll bring up uh, a whole host of menus. And on there, you can click on forestry or forestry manual assistance. And then how many foresters are in the state? Um, there's about uh, 10 district foresters. Um, they're with our with our cooperating agencies that we work a lot with. There's about 16 or 18 of us right now. Okay. And and before we get into the more in depth here, let's let's talk about what you what have you been up to oh, uh, for the last couple of weeks? Yeah. Um, well, this week uh, I finished putting up my firewood for 2021 and almost to 2022. So that was uh, working through the brutal humidity since 4th of July. It was nice to get that done. So it's all split. Um, dry, dry, dry. Man, that's Wait, awesome. For a winter, I like to be a ways ahead if I can be. Well, you are a ways ahead so, if you're thinking 2020. I ended up with a minor injury last <laughs> January, February. Couldn't cut firewood. So that's one of the reasons I like to be quite a ways ahead. So anyway, um, finished cut firewood. Uh been to the gun club a couple times, our local sportsman's club. We had a handgun shoot last weekend with a real good turnout. Had a ton of fun. Shot a lot of rounds. Uh, went back to the gun range on Tuesday night, setting in my rifle. We're getting ready for a rifle shoot coming up pretty soon here. So, awesome. yeah, got to help ban wood ducks last night with the wildlife biologist at the raccoon unit. That was pretty neat. So what do you do with that? I mean, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I, so it was my first time banning wood ducks. I loved a waterfowl hunt, uh, and I just love, you know, I'm in forestry, man. I love everything about the natural world. Uh, so getting to go out with them and um, go out to the trap and to be able to handle the birds, um, you know, look, them, look over the feathers to be able to IDM sex them. Um, and he puts puts leg band on them, and you toss them up in the air, and they fly away. So 
maybe someday I'll see one of those again during duck season. What, what's the trap? What's the trap look like? Uh, it's uh, super interesting, and I'm getting off into the weeds quite a bit here for me. It's uh, um, so they'll use corn to bring the birds into the into the pen, and they can come and go and eat as they please, so they're comfortable. And then at some point during uh, that time, they'll slip in there and shut the cage up, so they're in the pen. And then we come. When I came out to help them, we put them into a little staging box the ducks into a staging box and we can let the little chicks go. So we banded 11 uh, wood ducks and then let seven more, I think seven more chicks go. That, that'd be cool. super interesting yeah. to watch. How cool Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I helped with geese a couple years ago. Um, that's interesting, challenging, messy, and dirty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I always envision, you know, you see on TV with the, the net that gets shot over top of them, right? Things yeah. like that. Um, the time I've helped a couple of times and we haven't used those tools. I, they use them for other species, but we haven't the times I've helped. So it's, it's important for conservation and species, species management. Give some good research. Sure. Cool. Hey, yep. Going back to uh, my introduction with the uh, water hemp, can you relate? Is that uh, um, cringing? So I don't have to battle that very much, okay. except for maybe in new tree plantings. And we can often grow trees and shrubs through that. Um, my most recent experience was actually simply watching an Iowa State Extension agronomy video and trying to uh, identify the difference between water hemp and pea. Yeah. So if you're looking for more information, information, reach out. It's out there. Yeah. It's just a bad, it's nasty. Yeah. Right. So that's nasty. All right. Well, getting back more on topic, um, you know, so District Forester, if you kind of could describe to the audience here and to us, um, what would your job description look like? Okay, so for the most part, I spend most of my time working with private landowners in Iowa, um, such as you guys, and evaluating, one, figuring out what your goals are for the property, short-term, 10-year goals, long-term, 50, 100-year goals. It's really hard to get people to think out that far. That's one of the things. Meet with landowners, help them evaluate their forest land, figure out what they have, and then provide advice for how to manage the forest to meet those goals. And it could be a, a lot of different things. It could be just for natural beauty, for biodiversity, for songbird habitat, deer, turkey habitat, all the game species, non-game species, um, saw timber production, and a, quite a few of goal of landowner's goals will mesh and you'll be able to do multiple use forestry. Outdoor recreation, wood production, water quality, soil conservation, those can 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 all melt together. Or you can be strict and, and stick with a specific goal. Every landowner is different. That's part of my job is trying to figure out what they really want and need. Probably step one, right? Yep. So um and on a previous episode, we had Kevin Anderson here, and that you know Kevin. Similar approach, just different scope, it sounds like. That's right. So let's talk about the, the landowner has contacted you. It could be like Tim and I contacting you fairly new with property, or someone has property, and, and you know, like, hey, I heard, I heard this podcast on YouTube and, and uh, out there talking about there's some support from the Iowa DNR for forestry. Where, where do you start? What are the steps when someone contacts you, Kevin? Okay, so the, one of the first things is trying to figure out really what they need, what they want. Um, then that gets the landowner thinking more specifically about what they want out of their forest. And you've got to think about that in a diverse way. Forests are incredibly complex. What you do to the trees in the overstory affects the trees in the understory. What you do in the ground layer, the herbaceous layer, affects trees and overstory. So it's very interrelated. Just try to get them thinking about, okay, what, what do we want out of the forest today? What do we want out of the forest in 10 years? And what do we want the forest to be like in 50 or 100 years? What we do in the forest today affects the forest land for a long time. Maybe somebody else owns land, somebody you may not even know. So get them thinking about goals. And then once you figure out what they want and what they need, um, then you start to get gather enough information and uh, schedule a site visit. Um, <clears throat> you got to find out what you have in your forest land. 
And, and so, so the first thing to do is what we call a two-group cruise. We'll meet with the landowner for the site visit, interview with the landowner, narrow in their goals, focus on their goals a lot more, talk about goals while you're in the woods and looking at different types of trees, uh, forest, uh, you know, oak hickory forest or cottonwood forest or black walnut forest. Goals will be slightly different in those areas. So through the process of site visit, interview, and then do a timber cruise, that's where the, the expert forester will evaluate what species you have, what health they're in, what size class, what age, what's in the understory, what's in your herbaceous layer, what you have for invasive species, um, all these variety of things. And um, then really bringing that all together into a plan. And what we call a stewardship plan, a forest stewardship plan. So once you have a forest stewardship plan, that identifies what resources you have for your forest, what condition they're currently in, and recommendations what objective for that stand to do that will meet your goals or to help you meet your goals, whether it's today or 50 years from now. Because forestry is very much long-term. Oak rotation. Uh, rotation is a term we use from basically from the time an acorn sprouts until the trees are mature. Um, that could be... That can vary a little bit per landowner, but, you know, a 22-inch diameter white oak or something at 130 years old. So, wow. Yeah. So it really, it's, it's incredibly hard for landowners to think in that big of a scale. I do that every day. I get that perspective every day um, and look at more than 100 timbers a year and provide advice for those things. You get to see so many different levels of, of where a forest is at and be able to bring it all together and apply and get that advice to a person in stewardship plan. Yeah. Awesome. So. So just thinking out loud here with you, uh, so based on the objective, when you're sitting down saying, hey, what is the objective of your property? That really could sway the feedback that you're going to give in your observation when you do your cruise, right? Yes, absolutely. So it's important to keep the communication going with your expert, whoever. Uh, that doesn't, that's the same whether you're doing fisheries management in your pond or prairie management or forest management, keep your communication going with your expert. The more you learn and the farther you get into things, your perspective is going to change. Your goals probably will change with that. Therefore, your objectives to achieve those goals will probably be adjusted as well. So a quick question. Uh, so you said you see 100 forests a year roughly. Um, what would you say is the condition of the forest in the state, just roughly? Yeah, so I'll, I'll speak a little bit to southern Iowa for the most part. Um, we have quite a bit of oak in southern Iowa. That's our some of our favorite species for wildlife purposes, for soft timber purposes, for genetic diversity. So oak is awesome. That's the biggest reason I, I moved to southern Iowa for the oak resource. Um, but we're losing forest land. We've, we've lost a half, over half a million acres of forest land in the last five years in Iowa. Wow. Um, so that, that should be an alarm for everyone, anyone concerned with wildlife habitat or soil conservation and water quality, that, that's a major concern. So loss of forest land and parcelization of forest land, the size of each parcel is shrinking very, very rapidly. And then also invasive species. Invasive species are incredibly expensive to manage and get rid of. Um, and, and almost every timber stand is battling at least one invasive species, if not multiples. Yeah, I'd like to put you on hold for the invasive yeah. species because we're going to have a whole segment here in this episode yeah. around that. Now, the Lola grass doesn't fit into that. It's not an invasive species. Well, <laughs> maybe dominant. It depends on your objective, I guess, Tim. I'm figuring these DNR guys out. It, it depends on your objective. That's always the answer, right? It could be. Let me give you a little perspective on the parcelization. Uh, you know, in 1990 in Iowa, there were 55,000 landowners that owned a piece of forest land. And today there's about 138,000 owners of forest land parcels. So the average parcel that each person owns has shrunk massively. Currently it's about 12 acres, average 12 acres per landowner, forest landowner. And the number of owners has skyrocketed in that same window since 1990. 
So it's been a quick, very rapid change. So that puts a lot of stress on our resource for a lot of very in-depth reasons. One, it's managing oak forests for a long term. Usually, uh, you've got to cut trees at some point. And when you have a real small parcel, sometimes it's hard for people to do that. So that's a major threat to our oak resource. Uh, uh, just a uh, thing that worries me um, when you have real small parcels. So. Okay. Because I was going to ask, I mean... Um, and I know the answer, it depends, right? Depends on your objectives before I even ask this question. <laughs> However, um, so I get it. What I hear from you is, hey, going from bigger parcels to smaller parcels and then ownership of those bigger parcels is getting split by three times into a lot more people owning smaller pieces of the pie, basically. And what are the pros and cons of a big parcel versus a small parcel? Yeah, it depends on your goals. So... <laughs> There's um, an underlying theme here, you know. <laughs> you know, I gotta. I'll, I'll come, come back to answer your question in a minute. All right. I used to have a one-page paper that I would hand to a new landowner and ask them, fill this out, check the boxes. This will help you identify your goals. To try to get them focused in and thinking on some things. And I had twenty or more check boxes. Um, is your goal white-tailed deer habitat, or biodiversity, or sawtooth production, or firewood production, or turkey habitat, or songbird habitat? I had all these squirrel habitat, all these different choices on there. The first guy, the first several people I needed it to, they checked every single box. And that's great, that's awesome, but it also makes it incredibly complex because everything you do or management has a trade-off. Uh, if you want to grow an oak tree, release that tree, keep it healthy and vigorous, there's a trade-off. You have to cut something else to do that in your room. So everything has trade-off. You can burn your woods for good reason. You can overburn your woods and damage your trees. So there, everything has trade-offs. Yeah, and then I already forgot. <laughs> well, I was just going to make a comment. You're a pretty black and white guy, aren't you? It's no gray area with you at all. There's a lot of room for gray area, but the more the more you learn at both ends of the spectrum, help you focus in on your on your goal. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, going back to the question, I think the question was, um, you know, small parcel versus big parcel, what are the advantages from a forestry standpoint and disadvantages of each? Okay, so if if you're wanting to manage for, uh, let's use white-tailed deer. Well, I mean, for this podcast, just to make it simple, uh, moving forward, let's start with, hey, we're managing white-tailed deer and turkey. And if there's exceptions that, we can kind of talk to it. But I think that'll help the conversation. So you got to think about the wildlife side of things a little bit. You want to provide them with food and cover, and you can do limited amounts of that on a small property. Obviously, wildlife are mobile. So you're gonna, they're going to go to other properties around you to find the, the niches that they need. So you can help meet some of those niches on your property and improve your forest or whatever habitat you have to help meet those wildlife goals. But you also got to realize that uh, you know deer may use five square miles, and you're you're one small postage stamp on that entire landscape. Get it? Yeah. Okay. And, and then, then last last question around the small versus large parcel. How how are you defining small parcel versus big parcel? Oh, uh, loose terms. Yeah. Uh, if you think about it, just from an average standpoint, an average landowner with about twelve acres, um, uh, it. One of one of my perspectives is when you're when you have a mature oak stand and it's time to regenerate that stand, new oak seedlings need lots of sunshine, and to do that you remove a major part of the overstory of the canopy. Well, doing that on a half acre might be successful. Doing it on three acres lets lots of sunlight in. Well, if you only own a twelve acre piece of land, having a three acre ten percent improvement or a harvest. Um, may not be easy to stomach. So that, that affects how you will end up managing your team in the long run. The trees you have now will not last forever. So you gotta, you got to manage that stand so it meets the needs uh, in the future. Make sure you're regenerating the trees you want to regenerate. Yeah, that was one of the biggest learnings I had from visiting with you is, is uh, you have to actively manage your, 
your timber stand. Uh, you can't just think that, hey, you let it go and it's just going to be healthy. Well, I think the correct answer to that is it depends, depends. on your objective, Tim. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, <laughs> so one of, biggest, sorry, one of the biggest mistakes is probably to do nothing. Um, and that it usually is going to lead to uh, you're not going to maximize your goals and you're probably going to end up with species that you don't want. So that's something to consider. Think about your – if you can wind a 130-year rotation of forest down into a year or less, if you planted your – garden in on May 1 and ignore it all summer long and come back in August to harvest, you're probably not going to have a very good harvest and you're probably not going to get what you wanted. Similar with the forest, when you spread it out over 130 years, you may enter a particular tree stand to, for management purposes every 10 or 15 years to do a management activity. That helps you along the way to meet your goals in that long run. Like going back to the garden Every seven days or ten days or however often in between weedings you're going out weeding or, or watering or whatever you need to do. Those are intermediate practices along the way. Yeah, I think that's the that's a good analogy. message I took away from that was, uh, you know, the worst thing you can do is to do nothing at all. And yeah, I, 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 have, I grew up kind of in that environment that, oh, it's bad to cut any tree, you know, other than an obvious... Um, Evasive tree or whatever, and that's that's certainly not the case from taking away from this. That's a huge misnomer for our forest. Awesome. Okay, let's. Uh, so you got the objective. You know, you're sitting down with Joel and Tim, and Tim and Joel say, "Hey, we really want to manage turkey and deer here on this property." And you go on a uh, timber cruise, what you call it. So, what would that look like? And specifically, what are you what are you trying to gather from that that cruise? Okay, so it starts with a really good aerial photo. Um, which uh, technology now is wonderful. We can have real high resolution and fill shade and, and lots of great things for really high quality photos. We'll, we'll break up a property into different timber stands. And a stand of timber, timber is a group of trees that are similar. Normally they're similar in size, which means they're probably similar in age class. They're similar in species type. I'll use a big umbrella and describe an oak hickory forest. That has a majority of oak and hickory species, but they're also maybe included in that. Uh, hackberry, black cherry, American elm, red elm, American basswood, a wide variety. But that stand itself would classify as oak hickory. So you, once you identify that stand as being similar um, species class, then you help develop, uh, we always measure um, stocking, relative stocking. What that is, is a, it's a yardstick for how well you're utilizing the growth capacity for each acre of forest. We measure stocking with a, a basal area prism, and we, so we measure basal area through a stand that gives us a, a, an even playing field of how to compare a stand to where you can lay it out on a, on a uh, stocking chart, and it'll show you on trees per acre, if you can be growing more or less, if it's overstocked, that means you're crowded. Trees are crowded. Competition kills trees. So that's a, that's how you identify when to do timber stand improvements. Um, so once you have stands of trees identified, then you can start making uh, prescriptions for each stand to help meet the goals. If you want more sunshine on the ground for more herbaceous growth, you need to thin trees. you got to let sunshine in. Okay, well, which trees are you going to thin? How are you going to go about doing that? Are you just going to eliminate one species because you don't like them or you heard they were bad, may or may not be true? Or are you going to go to the specific trees that you want to favor? Let's say white oak. Great acorn for wildlife. The acorns are the most widely used food source in the forest by the most diverse group of wildlife, so it's not just deer and turkey we're talking about, but you may go to that white oak tree that's crowded by other competing trees around it and do what we call as a release, and release that tree from competition. So other trees that are crowned touching around it get removed from the stand. That also lets sunlight to the ground. We're back to that original question. We wanted to get more gracious growth on the ground in the canopy. Well, when do you do that and how much do you do that? That's where we yeah, I think that was one of the, that was the biggest aha for me. And we'll talk about TSI and the plan here in a little bit. But uh, 
on the topic is when I when I got my plan that you developed, I was blown away by. I mean, I just, I look at my forest as one, and you you had break broken it down into I think four different zones. Um, based on the habitat, based on the soil, based on the water, based on, I'm sure, several different characteristics. But, um, you know, that's just changed my mind, changed my thinking. And so much so that here we are a couple of years later now, you're into your management plan a few years of executing some practices um, for habitat purposes. And, and now you're opening up your world and learning about more things and just this year, we walked a new uh, portion of that area and thinking about going a step further and doing something else for other reasons. Yeah. So your, your perspective and your goals change. Well, I think, I think the big that. reason was you knew my list was getting shorter, so I needed to have a bigger list, right? So as I told as I told you last time, and every time I talk to you, I get five a list for five years, and it's been about five years, so I'm due. So think about forest management. You know, you have that 120 or 130 year time frame. Well, to make it a working forest and to be able to execute some things and to show some progress and to build your confidence, if you've got 100 acres of woods... Uh, and you want to work through all of it in a 10-year period, you do 10 acres a year. And in year 11, you're back to your first spot to reevaluate. Okay, is this achieving the goal I wanted it to or not? Is it time to do something else or we sit and let the trees grow and thrive? So you get it into a working rotation and a working schedule. And, and Jeremy, that whitetail and turkey objective that we started this conversation with, that may be a totally different approach if I said, no, I really want to, I want to be able to harvest wood um, on going through my generation, maybe even pass it down to my kids. I mean, that would be totally different, potentially totally different uh, objectives. If, if that is your only goal, that's correct. But they are not mutually exclusive. You can release that back to that white oak crop tree. You can pick a crop tree that's got a perfect, beautiful saw log. It might be 50 years until harvest. But you can release that tree now. For your acorn production, releasing crop trees can increase acorn production by sevenfold. It can also double their annual diameter growth. So you can grow fat, bigger saw logs faster. Everybody likes bigger trees, whether it's for saw log production or not. So you can grow bigger saw logs faster. You can have a bigger, healthier crown for acorn production. The more sunlight that's coming into that crown, the more acorns that tree can produce. And if I put a gun up against your head and I said, hey, would you rather have one big tree in this room or would you rather have, you know, 20 smaller trees, what what would be your choice? Yeah, I might shoot back. <laughs> and the only reason I said with the gun is because I know what the answer was going to be. It depends. But. Um, I would take one large tree and I want it to be healthy. There's a lot of natural beauty there too. And the fact that I know it's probably over 100 years old, it's pretty awesome. Now, I know you say you want it to be an oak, but I've seen you hug some of my walnut trees yeah. on my property. So I know you have a love for that, too. Every tree has its place. Um, some good, some bad. You know, bur uh, oak, black oak, like growing on a certain soil type or a certain aspect, a certain direction that hill faces. Black walnut likes a, a certain soil type of like a moist well-drained soil but knit down in the bottoms that doesn't mean it won't grow on the hilltop it just may not thrive so trees uh having lots of diversity is super important but having the right trees in the right place is also important and you can manage and and change that during different timber stand improvement practices tim before we go to the next step here any any questions on no i'm just as he's going through this i'm thinking about all the different little uh um, sub-forest areas I have on my property, and I'm going through the report that you did, and as we talked earlier before the show, you know, we've planted 650-some uh, different types of trees, so I'm just I'm just listening and thinking about strategy, right, and what I have, so it's interesting. So, um, moving on to, so it sounds like uh, the, kind of the output of the timber cruise, and uh, knowing what the objectives are, then you cruise the timber, is a plan. You come up with a plan. You want to talk through what, what the plan looks like and what it consists of? Yeah, so what we want to identify in the plan are the soil types. That helps you identify what 
um, what direction you should hit with some of your forest land. It doesn't tell you exactly what to do, it's just to identify what the ground land to support. Um, try to identify the historical aerial photos. You know, your, your forest today looks like forest. Well, why? Well, past land use there affected that forest land to become what it is today. Was it, is it native timber? Are they all north of 24 inch diameter oak trees? Really old, really mature? Or is it eight inch diameter honey locust and Osage orange? is probably because of the way the land was used. So uh, identifying the land, past land use is important, the soil types are important. And uh, we also provide information for just some generalized uh, about species, or, sorry, um, endangered species, uh, specifically Indiana bat and other longer bat. All of our native bat species live in the forest in Iowa. And Indiana bat is federally endangered, and that's so that's a species that we try not to do anything detrimental for them. Nice thing about Indiana bat is they migrate; they spend the winter um, south of us, so we can do forestry work during the dormant season and not have negative effects on them. In fact, by doing two percent improvement and leaving some dead trees in the woods, we're uh, improving their habitat because they like dead trees. They like to use the bark that hangs on dead trees. Uh, so invasive species. Um, a lot of things. We talk a lot about uh, um, oak regeneration. Um, we're running out of oak in Iowa, so regenerating oak is super important to us. And so we provide a lot of guidelines from seedling all the way through maturity, how to maintain that oak, and make sure you get oak back on that site, if that's what you want. Most of the time, that's that's a oak hickory forest. Um, that's top in, in ownership or goals for land. And is the oak is the oak because of the history of the state is kind of the natural uh, predominant tree? Or? Good question. So um, oak is our state tree, not any one specific oak, but oak is our state tree. Um, there are twelve native oaks in Iowa. Um, most all of them would actually grow in this part of the state, uh, which is pretty awesome. That doesn't mean we'll find every one of them on your particular property, but oak is definitely tied to our heritage. Uh, for furniture, uh, there are barns made out of oak. There are barns scattered around the countryside side still made out of black walnut. So settlers wow. moved here. Yeah, <laughs> we would never do that today. <laughs> no. But it was it was definitely treated as a resource, and they used every bit that, that they could when uh, early settlers were here. Um, they needed to build houses. We still need to build furniture, so it's all very important. Uh, from a habitat standpoint, you can't overlook the fact that the acorn is, uh, supplies food for 537, I believe, different woodland pollinators. So that includes uh, sites for egg development or larvae feeding on the tree somehow for uh, pollinators that need nectar. Uh, so super important. And acorn, again, acorn so on these uh i mean on the white oaks what's uh how long can they live oh yeah what's um, a compared to some of the other species i think that's important yeah there are oaks in iowa that are documented from sprouting from the from 1694 about that time frame so they did core studies on the trees to be able to count rings and, and to do that so that's uh Bad math here. That's north of 350 years old. Uh, Compare that to that walnut. Um, I, I don't know really what the oldest walnut tree was, or has is, or has been. But a 24-inch walnut tree, if they grow really, really fast, a 24-inch walnut tree could be 90 or 100 years old if they really grew fast. It, it all depends on how fast they grow on a site, and, it, and it's not what we're talking about. How old of a tree we can grow, you know, it's not really about, hey, how much is it growing every year? If it's an eighth of an inch or three quarters of an inch, we don't really care. Just it's about the habitat it provides, yeah. Some of the oldest trees in Iowa are white oak, bur oak, uh, cedar, um, which is our native juniper tree. Very old cedar trees in Iowa, in some places. It's amazing, you know, isn't it? The yeah. other thing is, I, I mean, 
I know I'm digressing here. I also planted some wild cypress, or uh, bald cypress. Uh, I mean, they'll live a long time too, right? They can. They're really unique. They're not native to Iowa. They have very good track history and not spreading, so not being an invasive species. Um, in their native range, which is probably as far north as maybe Interstate 70. Um, so we're a couple hundred miles removed on native range. We don't see much for winter damage on them, uh, except for extremely cold, cold winters. Uh, cold tree. So we get kind of a diffused tree. It has needles, but it's deciduous, so it drops needles in the fall. Brilliant orange fall color. They like they like having their feet wet, but they will tolerate a lot of soil types. Yeah, interesting. Kind of circling back to the plan. So, so sorry. No, 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 that's why I find it interesting. Uh, so what, what does the plan look like physically? What does it look like? And, you know, if someone's going to look at a plan, what are, what are they going to get out of that? Yeah, normally you'll be able to, you'll, you'll have a document that you'll be able to read through and, and, and keep for a long time. So you'll have your stand descriptions and, you'll, and, and prescriptions for those stands. And if it meets your goals, if it doesn't meet your goals, talk with your conservation planner, your forester, whoever you're working with, and say, hey, this, this something else might fit better here. What are the trade-offs? And see, and that's maybe a revision to the plan to do something different. But once you have that document, um, that's, that's your roadmap for, hey, this is what we ought to be focusing on for a 10 or 15 year period. Now that opens up the whole uh, opportunity if you want to, Try to apply for cost share programs. Help offset some of your expenses to implement practices. All right. Yeah, yeah and let's, let's let's just go right into that. I had step four is okay. Now you got the plan. There's some action that needs to be take place, right? So, what are you know what are some of those uh, programs we talked with Kevin in the previous a previous episode around uh, programs, if that's the right term. But what's available for a a person that has a forest and has the plan done and what's available for them. There will be some commonalities in your discussion there, Chad, with Kevin, too. Um, the most, one of the most popular programs in Iowa is our state cost share program through REAP, Resource Enhancement Protection. So there's a part of REAP um, that's provided for public spaces, green spaces, parks, uh, Back trails is also a part of this for private land management. So you go through your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office uh, and apply through there. And once you have a forestry plan, you can apply for a REAP cost share. So if you're ready to do a forestry practice, you can put in for a REAP cost share application. It's a, forestry is a long process. Getting a plan, site visit, getting a plan, and getting a buy for cost share. Getting approved for cost share and the actual implement, implementing the practice, this can all be a year, sometimes more. But it can, um, reap, and forestry reap can help offset about 75% of the expenses to, to implement that plan. Um, go ahead. In addition to that, we have federal programs, uh, EQIP, Environmental Quality and Incentive Programs, excuse me, Environmental Quality Incentive Program. Uh, EQIP is a very large uh, cost share program for a lot of different practices. It sort of opens up the world, your property, to a whole lot of options for practices. Um, payment rates are different with different cost share programs. They all have maximums. You can't just sign up and get a whole bunch of extra money with no ceiling. That's not true. So you'll know, depending on which program you're going into, they'll be payment rates or uh, maximums that you'll know. Before you sign the dotted line to do something, you'll know what your expenses will be. EQIP is sort of this big behemoth of a program, uh, but it provides the forest landowner uh, up to two years to execute a project, which means you really could do a really large project, do part A in year one, do part B in year two, and, and cover a lot of acres if you really wanted to do that. Okay. Um, and what, so what is one of the more typical actions coming out of, uh, you know, the REAP or EQUIP or any other program that's uh, going to be available yeah, for us? Tree planting to establish new stands and timber stand improvements. Um, those are certainly the, 
the most common practices. Um, then we start getting a little farther down the list and we get into brush management. That's specifically for invasive species control, uh, edge feathering for edge habitat. Um, I mean, we, we talked, talked a lot of edges with Kevin. So, uh, yeah, that's we a can... huge, often a missing link for habitat on a lot of land. Awesome. So, so let's talk, I mean, let's just go right down the list that you mentioned here. So tree planting, um, what, what should a landowner take in consideration when planting trees? Okay, so there's two, really two types of tree planting in Iowa. One is in the woods where you're normally planting by hand. So if you have, if you had a timber harvest and you want to replant, or if you have an old wilt pocket, killed the trees and you want to replant, uh, or if you have a stand of undesirable trees, we'll call weed trees, and you want to convert that uh, to old hickory. So you're going into those stands, you're killing competition, usually killing weed trees, and you're hand planting seedlings. And so because you're hand planting, you dial the numbers way back and you might plant 200 or 300 seedlings per acre. So that's in the timber stands. Conversely, if you have an open field, whether it's cropland or pasture land, uh, and you want to do any reforestation, in those sites you can plant with a machine. So you might plant 500, maybe 1,000 seedlings per acre. Alright, so those are the different ways that we use tree planting to help meet the goals. You're managing your vegetation, you're changing your species component, probably going from one species group to another because you can add in a lot of diversity with plantations. And, and that is all, the planting um, is, is should be and is based on, you know, what the objective is that you're trying to accomplish? Yeah, so the trees you plant will need to match your soil types and they need to match your goals, your long-term goals, what you want what you want to grow there. If it's way up on a high hill and you want soft timber production, you're making a mistake to plant black walnut. They won't thrive on that particular site. So that's where forestry can help you get the right trees in the right soil type. And maintenance, all tree plantings are a lot of work. Usually we bite off little chunks, you know, three, five, ten acres, maybe. Um, maintenance is, is important. Uh, if you're planting into, say, a pasture or some kind of perennial grass, that is major competition for tree seedlings and costs, potentially causes a lot of, of mortality. So set preparation to kill some of that grass, plant your seedling, and then during the next two summer, two growing seasons, uh, keeping the grass killed. Uh, will help increase your success. And normally that's done with herbicides. Herbicides are relatively inexpensive, very effective, and normally easy to apply. Are there herbicides out there that you can apply that kill everything but the tree? Yeah, actually there are. So we use specific products that are forestry labeled. When you're doing your site prep before the seedlings are planted, you have lots of options. Scorchers. Yeah, if you need to, yeah, yeah. Um, once the trees are planted in, in the ground, then we normally do um, dormant season herbicide applications. Maybe, you know, for us, for this part of Iowa, maybe an application in November. Or maybe an application at the end of March or beginning of April before the buds expand and, and leaf out. And what, what kind of herbicide would that be? Yeah, so it depends on, there's a lot. Um, okay. If you're trying to control... Good question. Yeah, if you're I get trying it, to I control... Say a broadleaf weeds with a pre-emergent, we would often use Princep 4L. If you're trying to control perennial grasses with a pre-emergent, that means you've already killed the grass and you've got basically bare ground. You want to keep any more from germinating, we use maybe pendulum, a pendimethylum product. Then there, if you have really good, well-calibrated equipment, there are some other products, maybe oust, labeled for forestry. Gives you a little bit of contact control and pre-emergent control, but doesn't kill your trees. Yeah, nice. You know these herbicide companies have marketing people that like that's all their job is is what what should we name this right. disease so they sound badass, right? This yeah. stuff you're gonna. <laughs> that's probably important. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so that's the tree planting, please. You know, pretty straightforward. Just one, one last question, question on that. You, you mentioned uh, tree planting equipment. Um, is that 
you rent? Is that a local thing you rent? Does the state provide that? What what are what options are available? Man, great question. So, um, if you have unlimited money, you can buy everything you want, right? Yeah. So, there's a lot of different tools. Uh, Dibble bars are real common for hand planting, or just a, a round nose sand shovel. Um, Sometimes you can borrow dibble bars or rent dibble bars. Maybe check with your county conservation board or your local state forest if there's one near you, and maybe be able to rent or borrow dibble bars. Getting up into uh, machine planting, um, there are quite a few forestry contractors in Iowa, and they have machines for plant seedlings. They open them up with a tractor, and, and away they go. So you can stick in 600 or 1,000 seedlings an hour and really put some tree in the ground. There are also uh, some of the. That's amazing. I mean, we got to. That's just amazing. I would love to watch that. It must be something. And that's YouTube. all mechanical. I mean, it's not yeah. someone in the back doing this. Uh, it's a little bit of both. So okay. there's, there's someone riding on the planner. Yeah. So, sounds safe. Someone experienced. And you go. You got to drive slow. You got to do a really good job. You know, you get around that the roots go down. Yeah, duh. But there's a lot more to it. Bad planting practices, incorrect technique, kills a lot of trees. You know, the root collar needs to be below the ground line, about an inch. Well, that's pretty particular. If you can't identify, if you don't know what the root collar is on the seed, then you probably shouldn't be the guy right on the planter. And then the soil that needs to be me. We'd have to have that center line. I'd, I'd be out. <laughs> yeah, I'd be out. And then the soil needs to be packed around the roots. Uh, so there's no air pockets. So you need root to soil contact. Just like if you're doing a prairie seeding, you need seed to soil contact. So that furrow, after you drive the planter through and, and plant that tree, that furrow needs to close up real nice. Well, the way you test that is with a two-finger tug. If you can tug that seedling out of the ground, you're not getting the furrow closed up tight. Worst case of you, if, if the deer walk down the road behind you and pull the seedlings out of the ground. That's a bit of an exaggeration, but it can happen. I've, well, I've seen it. So like when we'd use the dibble stick or the, you know, the dibble bar, uh, we planted a ton of white oaks and black cherries and stuff. And, uh, the next day we found a bunch that were just sitting out and the deer would just go up there and they'd get it and trying to nip off the top. They pull the whole tree out. Yeah, they're looking for something easy to eat. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there are, so another way to, to get a tree planting machine, uh, I think I forgot to mention, um, Pheasants Forever chapters, National Wild Turkey Federation chapters, they often partner a lot of times with your local county conservation board or maybe your solar water conservation district which is at your nrcs office so there are sometimes tree planters around that you can write this ends part one of midwest hunting and outdoors by two dumbasses featuring jeremy cochran representing the iowa dnr forestry please stay tuned for part two thanks for listening or watching our show we have some exciting topics and guests coming up we ask that you subscribe to our channel on YouTube and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We look forward to hearing your suggestions for topics, questions, and comments. This is Two Dumbasses signing off. Until next time, be, be safe, safe, have, have fun, fun, and, and get, get outdoors. outdoors.